0: Mancreef on Talk. This week is the 30th anniversary of the Downing Street Declaration, the deal that formed the bedrock of the Good Friday Agreement. And like all such negotiations, it was torturous and often stymied by mutual distrust. This story is told in the latest Johnny Fallon podcast. Afternoon, Johnny.
1: Good afternoon, Sean. Now, this all
0: happened in 1993 and I suppose to put this in a bit of context, violence was still very much ongoing at the time these talks were taking place.
1: It certainly was. Uh, it was a very live situation, tragically, as, uh, you know, there were a lot of uh, bombings, some of them very tragic. People will remember some of them, like the, the Warrington bombing where uh, two young boys were, were killed and the Grey Steel attack in uh, Derry, where, where several uh, people were, were shot by loyalist paramilitaries. But, you know, what people sometimes forget at this distance is that the violence in Northern Ireland was at a It was a rate of something every one, two, three days. Somebody was shot. There was an attack on somebody's home, a bomb alert. There were bombings in the UK. There were incendiary devices going off. It was a very live, continual news story of violence from Northern Ireland at that time, and and very tragic too.
0: Did that have a direct effect on the talks?
1: It had a very major impact on the talks because unlike later times when perhaps, you know, the Good Friday Agreement or other uh, negotiations were going on where there were ceasefires, these talks were all happening in secret uh, at a time when these sides did not trust each other. So you had the IRA who didn't know whether they could trust politicians or were just being led down a blind alley. And you had politicians in the British government and the the Irish government who very much by by seem to be talking to terrorists, uh, as, as it was put in, in the media, they could very well lose their careers over this because people said you shouldn't be talking to people who bomb and shoot and, and you know, hold a gun under the table while they're talking to you. So to bring about that piece brought huge risks uh, attached to it. And every time there was a killing, of course, there was pressure that you shouldn't really be, be reaching out to them and it might be a big mistake.
0: Mm. How were those contacts made at the time? Because I assume it wasn't like Albert Reynolds was going to meet Jerry Adams. It was through proxies, I assume.
1: It was very much through proxies, and certainly on the Irish side, it was through Father Alex Reid, who was uh, the main contact for Albert Reynolds as Taoiseach at the time. He he uh, had Father Alex Reid and Martin Manzer, his advisor. Between the two of those were, were known to be disappearing for a couple of days, going up north, talking to the, the various people. Then they would appear in government buildings or somewhere secret where they, they could meet, and later on at Albert Reynolds' own apartment, sometimes arriving in the middle of the night, uh, in order order to pass messages and avoid being seen or avoid anybody hearing about uh, the contacts.
0: How important, though, was the relationship between between John Major and Albert Reynolds, they did know each other before all this started?
1: They did because uh, they had both been Finance Minister and Chancellor of the Exchequer uh, in their respective governments uh, some years previously and have met on the margins of of EU conferences. And what was strange about it was, for an Irish perspective, perhaps completely unique in this uh, context, they struck up a really close friendship. They really liked each other. They became lifelong friends uh, after that time. And they really trusted each other. And when they both found themselves as the respective leaders of their country, that trust remained. And, you know, they had some very forthright, difficult discussions. And it was always difficult because you had different sides pulling out of them saying, you know, to the British, the Unionists wanted certain things, Nationalists wanted certain things and the Irish government. But their own friendship allowed them to get over a lot of those things and just trust each other and and make a leap of faith for each other that sometimes leaders don't do and governments can't afford to do.
0: And what were the sticking points from from the irish side was there a push to just have sunningdale again
1: I think from the Irish side, there was a particular push that been the Hume-Adams talks uh, had been very much, you know, uh, out there at, at that stage that John Hume had been talking to Gerry Adams. And there was a feeling in the nationalist community that if you just gave something to the IRA, you could get some some uh, peace dividend from that. But, of course, that was not seen by the British as being entirely trustworthy because the IRA weren't brought round to the principle of consent that, uh, you know, the IRA would lay down their arms and it would only be on the idea of consent that the people would have to agree if they wanted a change in the status of Northern Ireland. But the IRA were suspicious of that idea because that could mean a veto for, for the unionists uh, in the North. So a lot of distrust was had built up on those things. And of course, whether Britain wanted or still had an you know, economic interest in the North was still a, a very strong point. But main sticking point for, I mean among all of this was the fact that nobody could or would actually trust each other after decades of violence and murder, murder on one side and and governments breaking promises on another. There was a sense that we had to end the violence and uh, the leaders wanted an end to it, but it had to be permanent and it had to be something that was different, a reset of the negotiations, not just more governments putting down rules, but no real follow up. They wanted a reset that could allow for a proper ceasefire and then possible negotiations. It was to put a political framework in place and that was perhaps unique in in world uh, crisis and conflict negotiations because that's the bit that people often rush ahead and forget they need. They need new parameters in order to have talk about ceasefires and peace.
0: And and at the end or towards the end when uh, it was down to Major and Reynolds to go into a room by themselves and thrash this thing out.
1: It was. As it came towards the December, uh, the, the agreement was signed on the 15th of December and there was a summit in Dublin in, in early December that was crucial. Uh, but a lot of problems had arisen. The British had introduced a second document right at the the, the end, which didn't suit the Irish government after months of negotiating on one go- document. The British also didn't trust what they saw as media leaks from the Irish government pressuring them into getting an agreement before Christmas. And the British, then it was revealed, have been talking to the IRA in the background. Those talks had failed. There was a lot of distrust. So what happened was, unique in uh, these kind of negotiations, that when they arrived in Dublin for the summit, there was very little progress they could see being made. The teams were, were very much didn't even know what they were negotiating on. Reynolds and Major agreed to go into a room together with no advisors. And that just doesn't happen. You always have one person in there with you. They went into a room. Martin Manzer and Roderick Lyme from the British side were outside. They could hear the raised voices as mm. these two men absolutely totally strips off each other with quite an industrial language letting each other know exactly what they thought of each other they did that for about an hour then they brought in some uh, their, their two advisors and they still glowered at each other famously john major snapped a pencil and two fired it across the room there were files being thrown at each other there was a huge amount of anger but actually it was their friendship that allowed them overcome that anger to make that leap of faith to start putting the Irish document back on the table to agree that there'd be some discussion on Articles 2 and 3 of the Irish Constitution and to force this through, that within a couple of days they were able to come to that agreement. But if you imagine individuals having to have a row, John Major described described that row as the most forthright and fiercest conversation he ever had with another individual in in, uh, his years as Prime Minister. But it was only because they were able to do that and get that angst out of the system before the negotiating team. Teams could come in and say, "Okay, these guys are really going at it, but they trust each other and are willing to give each other that trust uh, and and in a leap of faith and make this document work."
0: And in general terms, Johnny, the Good Friday Agreement was that was what was envisioned by the Downing Street Declaration, or were there any surprises in there?
1: Uh, there were, well, there were surprises along the way, and of course, it was a torturous process after that because you had an IRA ceasefire, which was came about about a, you know the following August, and and then that ceasefire broke down. So there were difficulties within that, but I think the challenge was that for many of them, it was necessary to have the Downing Street Declaration in order to develop uh, a framework that you could have peace negotiations in.
0: Yeah. Uh, And so, the the aim, if you like, the short term aim of that was just to establish some sort of peace before you could get into the nitty gritty of all
1: this. A a peace, parameters for it, was to really convince paramilitaries in both the northern, in in loyalist and uh, the IRA that there was a political process, that if they laid down their arms, there was a political process you could now take part in, because that didn't exist before. There were no parameters set out as to what that process might look like. This finally put the point from the governments that it was clear that if got arms were laid down, then you could actually have a proper negotiation that could lead to something worthwhile. But that was the first time it had really, those parameters have been set out. Now, it still took a lot of convincing after that to bring them there. It took many months to get the first IRA ceasefire. But it was the first time and it was crucial in that because it was the reset of thinking away from just governments coming up with plans to openly saying we want to actually bring, if you like, the men of violence inside the tent if they're willing to lay down their arms. And there are parameters here that they can agree with, trust and understand in order to take part in that.
0: Mm -hmm. I suppose given the political paralysis there still is in Northern Ireland, that was the start of what we're seeing as an ongoing process.
1: It was the start of a a, a very long process and a very difficult process as part of it. But the one thing I think it taught us uh, was that it took enormous risks and and they were risks John Major and Albert Reynolds took huge risks politically, both of them. There was no great dividend for either of them in the success from us. They were both gone within a couple of years politically after us. But equally on the paramilitary side, people like Father Alex Reed, Archbishop Robin Eames and took huge risks that they didn't have to in getting involved in the process. And people like Gerry Adams and Martin McGuinness, too, did take massive risks politically and indeed in their own lives at that time because it was a live situation and loyalist paramilitaries and nationalist paramilitaries very much were finding you know there were bombings there were shootings and talking about peace and uh, as some would see it surrender on either side was a very risky business too but there was a unique mix of people who really were willing to take those risks and all trust each other at the same time that made it happen.
0: And you can find out in even greater detail about the 30th anniversary of the Downing Street Declaration on the Johnny Fallon podcast. Johnny Fallon from Car Communications thanks a million. Thank you, Sean. Moncrief, weekdays at 2 p.m. on News Talk.